Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called The Reformation at 500, an Anglican Episcopal Perspective. This is a guest essay by Jane Shaw. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 22, 2017. For the month of October, Journey with Jesus is remembering the Reformation with guest essays from five traditions, Catholic, Reformed, Anglican, Lutheran, and Orthodox. This week's essay is by Jane Shaw, Dean for Religious Life and Professor of Religious Studies at Stanford University. She's an Episcopal, Episcopal priest who was ordained in the Church of England. This year we mark the 500th anniversary of the posting of Martin Luther's 95 Theses on the castle door in Wittenberg in 1517. When we think of the Protestant Reformation, we think first of the great reformers and theologians like Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. But things were rather different in England where there was no such figure leading the charge. Instead, successive monarchs and parliamentary acts determined the course of the Reformation in that country. This does not mean that the voices of reform had not been heard in England by the time that Henry VIII broke with Rome in the 1530s. The translation of the Bible into English, humanist scholarship, and tracts against the abuses of the late medieval church were all present and lively. Nevertheless, it's the case that the fortunes of those who both resisted and desired Protestant reform were swayed and shaped by the faith of the monarch. After Henry died in 1547, the short reigns of Henry's son, the Protestant Edward VI, and older daughter, the Roman Catholic Mary, meant that there was much change in a short period of time it was only during the long reign of his younger daughter, Elizabeth I, 1558 to 1603, that some sense of an enduring reformation in its parameters were established. So what was and is the legacy of the Protestant Reformation from an Anglican or Episcopal perspective? First, and perhaps most obvious, is the Book of Common Prayer, this is the liturgy in English, devised and compiled by Henry VIII's Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, though he was unable to bring it into use until Edward's more overtly Protestant reign. While the Protestants in continental Europe fought over matters like how one is saved and the exact meaning of the Eucharist, Cranmer thought that all would be well if everyone prayed together and so he created a prayer book for all to use. The only doctrinal statements to be assented to, at least for the laity, were the creeds of the early church. In this way, the practice of prayer took precedence over the statement of beliefs. Elizabeth I reinforced this idea by, th by saying that she did not wish to make windows into her subjects' souls. Cranmer took the traditional monastic offices and reduced them to two, morning and evening prayer, which the parish priest says daily 
on behalf of the whole parish, regardless of who was present. A Church of England priest friend of mine tells a story to illustrate this. In his parish in rural Sussex in the 1980s, he would ring the church bell every morning, say morning prayer, often on his own, and then go to buy the newspaper from his village shop. One morning, feeling a bit sick, he skipped the bell ringing in morning prayer, but later went to buy his newspaper. The shopkeeper chastised him. No bell today, which means you did not say morning prayer for all of us. This means that, in the Anglican tradition, every day begins and ends with prayers of praise, confession, and thanksgiving, the saying of psalms and readings from the Bible. The beauty of Cranmer's language with prayers known as collects, composed by him, or adapted from Latin or Eastern Orthodox sources, or from the work of his contemporary Protestant reformers, has shaped the devotion of many generations across many countries. As the British expanded their empire and engaged in missionary activity, so they took the Book of Common Prayer with them. By the end of the 19th century, the Book of Common Prayer was, as one commentator puts it, at the height of its career, translated into numerous different languages. In the 20th century, it was subject to revisions in many countries as modern reformers attempted to bring Cranmer's language and theology up to date and create worship that was culturally appropriate for their own contexts. Anglicanism's distinctive prayer book also gave birth to an extraordinary musical legacy as early as the 16th century, composers started to set the canticles from morning and evening prayer to music, especially the Magnificat and the Nunc Dimittis from the Gospel of Luke for evening prayer. And thus the tradition of evensong emerged. In cathedrals, parish churches, and college chapels throughout the Anglican Communion, choirs sing evensong to the glory of God every day. As other church services see a decline in attendance, Evensong sees a surge in popularity. As people come to appreciate the beauty of the music and liturgy, and of the architectural surroundings, too. In England, there is even now an app so that you can find the nearest Evensong to you. It's called choralevensong.org. Step into a cathedral any afternoon of the week, and you can hear music spanning across the centuries, from Thomas Tallis to Herbert Howells to Judith Weir. The enduring significance of Evensong reminds us that beauty has always been central to the Anglican vision. It's often said that the English Reformation created a kind of via media, avoiding the confessional wars of continental Europe. It is true that the Elizabethan theologian Richard Hooker forged a system which appealed to scripture, reason, and tradition. And, like a three-legged stool, the edifice only stands up if all three legs are present. His contribution to the Elizabethan settlement of religion in the late 16th century was undoubtedly important, 
And Anglicanism has, as a result, a reputation of being, quote-unquote, reasonable. But in reality, that Elizabethan settlement also sowed the seeds of exclusion, which, at least in part, led to the Civil War of the 17th century and saw the execution of the Archbishop of Canterbury and the King and the proscription of the Book of Common Prayer. When the crown was restored in 1660 and the Church of England in 1662, the Church's settlement this time relied on the exclusion of all those who could not accept either the Book of Common Prayer or the Episcopate. And thus, a long and honorable tradition of dissenters emerged. Many would say that Anglicanism has been constantly reformed. It both produced and wrestled with the learning of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, developed high church and evangelical revivals, as well as a new turn to issues of social justice in the 19th century, It saw the independence of many churches around the globe in the 20th century and simultaneously created a family network known as the Anglican Communion, of which the Episcopal Church in the United States is a member. What has emerged over nearly five centuries with enduring popularity is a sense of common prayer and ritual. When Anglicanism has been at its best, it has constantly attracted people to ponder the glory and love of God through the beauty of liturgy, the mystical mystical tradition of prayer, thoughtful and intelligent preaching, music, literature, and art. And for further reflection, see the volume in Princeton University Press's series called Biographies of Books. In particular, Alan Jacobs, the title, The Book of Common Prayer, A Biography, Princeton, Princeton University Press, 2013. An Anglican View of the Reformation by Jane Shaw of Stanford University. For books this week, I review a title called Moses, A Human Life. The author is Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, New Haven, Yale, 2016, 223 pages. This short biography is one of the titles in Yale University's Press's series called Jewish Lives of Interpreted Biographies of Jewish figures in literature, religion, philosophy, politics, culture, economics, art, and the sciences. About 30 titles are already published, with about the same number still forthcoming. The story of Moses unfolds during the Egyptian genocide. We read that all the Egyptians were ordered to throw every Hebrew boy into the Nile River. Moses survived the infanticide and his own faults and fears because of the courage and compassion of seven women who are specifically mentioned in his birth narrative. The midwives, Shipra and Pua, were two ordinary women who performed extraordinary acts of faith. 
Moses' biological mother also resisted the genocide when she hid him for three months. Then Moses' adoptive mother discovered the floating basket. She's the daughter of Pharaoh and an Egyptian princess. She was accompanied by her women attendants and a slave girl who retrieved the baby Moses from the Nile. Miriam, the sister of Moses, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. She inserted herself into the story quite cleverly by suggesting to the princess that she obtain a Hebrew woman to nurse the crying baby. And then, as an adult, Moses married Zipporah of Midian. Moses thus grew up with an ambiguous triple identity. He was a Hebrew born into the house of Levi. He was raised by his adoptive mother as a prince at the center of Egyptian political power. And then he married a foreign wife. In the far side of the desert at Mount Horeb, God called Moses to return to Egypt, the land of Israel's genocide, to mediate between God and his people and between God and Pharaoh. He appeared to Moses in flames of fire within a bush. His call was an impossible burden, fraught with ambiguities. When God called him, Moses responded, Here I am. But later he wondered, Who am I? God assured him that the people will listen. But Moses worried they won't listen. So he was full of ambivalence, inhibitions, fears, and doubts, and rightly so. As Zorbog puts it, there's a certain kind of reticence or circumspection that halts the true prophet, faced with the inscrutable God, whose revelation must be narrowed in to what can be said. Nonetheless, God insisted, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And when Moses doubted his deepest self, God assured him, I will be with you. Such is the paradox and burden of prophecy, observed Martin Buber. It is laid upon the stammering to bring the voice of heaven to earth. Zornberg's interpretive methodology will strike most of us Christian readers as quite different. And for that very reason, her book is well worth reading. She incorporates a broad and diverse number of sources, psychoanalysis and Freud, Midrashic texts from the 3rd to the 10th centuries, classic commentators, modern literature like Dickens and Kafka, poetry by T.S. Eliot, philosophers Ricoeur, Buber, and Nietzsche, and even painters like William Turner and Impressionism. Perhaps this is fitting, for as the dust jacket blurb of this puts it, no figure looms larger in Jewish culture than Moses, and few have stories that are more enigmatic or compelling. In Zornberg's retelling, Moses speaks today some 3,300 years after he lived. The author, Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. The title, Moses, A Human Life, New Haven, Yale, 2016. 
For movies this week, we go to Canada with a title called Maudi, M-A-U-D-I-E, from the year 2017. This wildly improbable love story is a tearjerker in the best sense of a word. It's a dramatization of the like of Maud Dowley, 1903-1970, of Nova Scotia, one of Canada's best-known folk artists, and her marriage to Everett Lewis, an illiterate and violent oaf who was an orphan, fish peddler, seller of chopped wood, and collector of junk. The misanthropic Lewis lived on the edge of town in a tiny shack, in real life 10 by 12 feet, and very much on the edge of society. When he placed an ad for live-in domestic help, Maldi replied, She suffered from juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. When her mother died and her brother sold the family home, she was shipped off to her bitter Aunt Ida. And so, two deeply wounded people start off awkwardly, to say the least, but find and make a deeply human love together. How she became a famous artist by meeting a woman from New York City in rural Nova Scotia is almost incidental to the story of their marriage, along with an important subplot. You were the only one in the whole family who found happiness, Aunt Ida tells Mao. The movie was shot in Ireland and Newfoundland and was a favorite at numerous film festivals. From the year 2017, Maudi. And finally, we continue with our series of poetry by Scott Cairns, and his series of so-called idiot psalms. This one is called Idiot Psalm with Fear. Forgive, O fire, forgive, O light, the patent fraught impurity of we who thus presume to open unclean lips, availing now a portal for your purity. Forgive the chatter of our blithely fearless crowd awaiting your pure body, pretty much the way we stand in any fast food queue, considering our neighbors' faults, puzzling at those odd few who seem to shiver some as they approach your wound. Holy One, allow that as we near the cup, before the coal is set upon our trembling tongues, before we blithely turn and walk again into our many other failures, allow that we might glimpse, might apprehend something of the fear with which we should attend this sacrifice, for which we shall not ever be found worthy, for which, I gather, we shall never be prepared. A Eucharistic Psalm by Scott Cairns Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 22, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.